what they saw and heard. And people were amazed. And all the way through, people were amazed that Jesus was able to have authority over the, uh, uh, the powers of hell. They were amazed that he had um, authority and power over nature by calming the seas. Pilate was amazed that he didn't defend himself. Um, and even after his resurrection, the disciples were amazed. That shouldn't be too surprising that the Lord of the universe is an amazing, awe-inspiring individual. Then we might even ask ourselves the question, does anything amaze Jesus? Well, think about it. Here is, the Bible tells us that He is the one through whom all of the creation was created. He saw the very beginning of the cosmos, saw planets and stars and suns and galaxies come into being. He saw them birthed, caused them to be birthed. He is the one who has seen our unformed parts. He is the one who knows all of our days before there's even one of them. And he knows each and every event of our lives. He is the one for whom knows every detail of the past. The present is always before him. And the future is something that he has already foreordained and seen every second of every moment that you and I have yet to experience. Would anything amaze or cause one like that to be in awe? The scripture is actually very clear. There are two things that amaze Jesus. Twice in scripture, twice in the New Testament, we see Jesus being amazed. One's negative and one's positive. They're actually, one's the negative side of, they're really speaking of the same thing. One negative, one positive. And the negative, let me just mention, the negative is that in his hometown of Nazareth, they would not believe. And he was amazed at their unbelief. What an amazing thing. Amazed at their unbelief. Here I am, I've grown up in your midst. You've seen me, you've seen my work, and you will not believe. It says, and therefore he could do no miracle there. And, they, he, they, and Jesus was amazed. There's one other place where Jesus was amazed, and that's in our text today. It's the opposite side of what we just looked at, and that is he's amazed at belief. An individual believes. So on the one hand, he's amazed at unfaith, and on the other hand, he's amazed at great faith. So, because, at least on the positive side, Jesus is amazed. It's such a unique thing to see Jesus amazed. We should probably stop and spend a few moments looking at what it is that causes the Lord of the universe to go, That's awesome. I can't believe that. That's just amazing. I'm in awe. Jesus marvels. So what would cause Jesus to be amazed? And so we are going to look at that today. Now, as we're entering Luke chapter 7, it's important for us to realize that 
Well, I know that Luke chapter 7 follows chapter 6. I'm, I'm pretty aware of that. But let's not make the mistake of thinking that chapter 7 is unrelated to chapter 6. Sometimes when we get to a new chapter or to a new paragraph, we fail to connect the two as though now something new is starting, some great new scene. Sometimes that's true, but in this case, that would be inaccurate. In other words, chapter 7 is very connected, quite connected with chapter 6. And in chapter 6, especially when we studied the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that Jesus was dealing with was what is a disciple? What does it mean to follow Christ? We also saw not only what is a disciple, but we also learned of Jesus' call to exclusive loyalty. That is, Jesus says, I am Lord, Lord. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord and don't do what I say? That's a call to exclusive loyalty. How can you say I'm Lord but not do what I say? And then he goes on and he says, the person who hears my word is, and does them and acts upon my word is like a wise man who builds his house on a foundation. And the person who hears my word but does not do them is like the, the foolish person who builds a house without a foundation. In other words, Jesus is calling us to an exclusive loyalty to him, to trust totally in his words. So he's called us and described to us what a disciple is, and he has um, called us to an exclusive loyalty to him. And so today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to, first of all, see or have reasons, Jesus is going to give us reasons for exclusive loyalty, because after all, anybody can say, follow me. Anybody can say, um, follow my words. Anybody can say, my words are wise and you should listen to them. I mean, let's face it, a financial advisor might tell you that, a politician will tell you that, a pastor can tell you that. Um, All sorts of individuals, a psychiatrist can tell you that. Many people can say, you need to follow my advice. Jesus not only tells us that you need to follow my words, but then he says, and I'm going to to back it up. I'm going to give you evidence of why I should be Lord and you should do what I say. I'm going to give you evidence why my words are worth building your life upon. So that's what we're going to see all the way through chapter 7. Jesus is going to give us a reason for his uh, for, for exclusive loyalty. And today what we're going to do, so there is this call as we go forward to, uh, ev- or there's this evidence for an exclusive loyal relationship to Jesus Christ. And then we will also today meet a man who actually illustrates or exemplifies the disciple of chapter 6. So as we were going through the disciple of chapter 6, you might have been thinking, well, that's a pretty lofty standard. Who can do that? We're going to meet a man today that actually meets, um, actually follows Christ in that way. So let's go ahead and read. We're going to read chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and then we will uh, look at it and detail it a little bit more closely. So Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. After he had finished all, these, all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is, one, he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And he was not far from the house, the centurion, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Father, we come before you this morning, and I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you, Lord God. That we might see you exalted, as the centurion understood your exalted position. Let us have that same, those same eyes of faith. As the centurion heard about you and acted, Lord, I pray that we hear of you. And faith comes by hearing that we would act upon what we hear about you and believe what is, um, believe your word. Guide us by your spirit, Lord God, and impart these truths to our lives that we might train others. For Christ's sake, amen. All right, so let's just first begin with kind of time and place where all of this is happening. Um, it's just good to set the background uh, of all of this. And first of all, so the time is, of course, after the discourse, after these words um, the text tells us. And um, so after the, after, the, after the discourse, after the Sermon on the Mount, after um, Jesus uh, says, you should believe in me, you should have faith in me, um, I am Lord, Lord, and you should do what I say, Jesus is now going to um, give evidence that he is a worthy object of faith. The other thing we should note is where this is located. It's located in Capernaum. And Capernaum was really Jesus' home base, um, at least while he was in Galilee. And uh, it's, it's interesting that all of this occurs in Capernaum. I don't think it's an accident that it occurs in Capernaum. Because of all the things we know about Capernaum, the main, one of the main things we know is that it was a faithless town. Don't you remember? Uh, Luke, we'll get to it in a little bit, but Matthew really goes into great detail saying, Oh, Capernaum, if the miracles that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. In other words, Capernaum, you're worse than Sodom. Think about it. Sodom was burned up. It is no more. It is kind of the epitome of a, of a, of a sinful city. And Jesus is saying, Capernaum, I've done all of these miracles, even... <laughs> A horrific, vile city like Sodom would have repented if they had seen what I do in your midst. And you will not believe. So this is where these events are taking, pl- ta- taking place. It is in the midst of this faithless town. It is in the midst of unbelief that we are going to discover an outsider. Who is a shining light in this darkness. Well... So after he'd finished all these sayings, 
in the hearings of the people. He entered Capernaum. And now we get to this crisis. We get, and the crisis is this, that there is a centurion who has a slave who is sick. Matthew tells us he is paralyzed, but um, there is this great concern for his health, probably near death. And so the centurion has a sick slave and um, is seeking his remedy, seeking his healing. And so, first of all, we should note a little bit, uh, pay attention a little bit to what is a centurion. Well, a centurion was a military individual. He was a commander of about a hundred, right? Centuries, centurion, centuries, a hundred. So he's a commander of about a hundred. He's a fairly high-ranking official, not way up there, maybe like a captain today. Um, So certainly there were those who were above him, and there were, and yet he had great authority. He was probably pretty well paid. Um, he uh, was a Gentile. We don't know if he was a Roman, if he was Roman or not, because Rome would go and conquer places, and then if there were people who were good fighting individuals who would side with him, they would bring them into the army and train them and equip them, and they would become uh, part of the, Roman, uh, of the Roman military. So we don't know if he was actually Roman. One of the reasons why we don't think he might have been Roman is Rome actually didn't put Roman troops in the area until around 44 BC. And so this, I'm sorry, 44 AD. And so uh, it's quite possible that uh, this guy's not even Roman. Some people have suggested he's Samaritan, and I really wanted to believe that because it preaches well, and I could make some really good points, but the bottom line is the text is utterly absent uh, of telling us where he's from. We do know he's a, he is a Gentile. That's about as far as we as we get. So most likely because this occurred prior to a military uh, occupation of Galilee, he was most likely um, serving under Herod Antipas, who by the way is a non-Jew and was hated by the Jews, and most likely he was there as some sort of a peacekeeper, but more likely to help collect taxes. And so now we have a good picture, because let's face it, tax collectors are certainly one of the most hated groups then and now of, uh, of individuals. So here we have this Gentile, hated by the Jews, working for Herod Antipas, who's hated by the Jews, who works for the Roman government, hated by the Jews, and he was a tax collector. Not only that, but because he was a Gentile, and most likely he was a pagan idolater, Loyal to the occupying country, as I said, serving a non-Jewish ruler, making sure the Jews were obeying their occupiers. I don't think you can get much more despised or much more outside than this guy. And this guy, this outsider, this outcast has a sick slave. This is going to be important for us as we go through this because... Slavery was, was very common in the Roman, uh, under the Roman Empire, and some slaves were treated fairly well. I mean, a lot. some slaves were doctors and, and accountants and had high positions. But the, ultimately, slavery is slavery. And uh, slaves were disposable. You could get rid of one as they were property, they were chattel, and they had little intrinsic value. In other words, you got a sick slave, it doesn't matter, you can get another one. And we should note also that he is a, a young individual, probably a boy. We know that because later on when it talks about uh, the slave 
um, being healed, it uses the Greek word pais, which is a, a young person. So this is a, a young person who is has really no intrinsic value, at least in the eyes of Rome. However, to the centurion, the centurion um, highly regards, highly loves this person. So let's kind of summarize where we've been, put all of these pieces together. We have an outcast, a Roman centurion, who has an unusual concern for another person who's of even lower status. In other words, he has an unusual concern for somebody who cannot who offers him nothing. And the servant becomes ill, and the centurion hears about Jesus. I don't want to go past this too quickly, because faith comes by hearing. How is it that the man actually came to a place of believing in Christ? He never met Christ. In fact, when we get to the end of the story, he never met Christ. Never personally had an encounter with Jesus Christ. Never came into his physical presence. And yet, Jesus marvels at this man. Somewhere, he had heard about Jesus. Probably had heard about miracles, perhaps. Um, we, we have a, a, another encounter where uh, a person of, of high regard in the area of uh, uh, of Capernaum has, has his uh, child healed, perhaps heard from them. But he'd heard about Jesus. You're going, well, if you hear about miracles, of course you're going to believe. Not, not true, because Capernaum didn't believe. They saw the miracles and they wouldn't believe. This man hears about Jesus and he believes. You're saying, how do you know he believes? Because he took action. He actually said, go get, he sent a delegation of Jewish elders to go get Jesus and bring him to my house because he has the answer to what is my problem. He can heal my servant. He already believes. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So from his actions, it's clear that he had heard about Christ and he believed. So we have to ask ourselves this question. Have you heard about Christ and do you believe? Do we believe words like, take no thought of tomorrow. Tomorrow's got enough troubles for himself, but rather seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's like, have we heard and do we believe? And so this outcast believes and calls for Christ to come. And so he actually calls and he sends a delegation of Jewish elders. And they are called to speak on behalf of this elder, or of the centurion. And I love how they come to him. They, and they, he come, they hear about Jesus, and they come to him, and they pleaded with him earnestly. And nobody says, he is worthy. He's worthy. He is worthy to have you, Jesus, come into his house and heal a servant. He has merit enough to garner your favor. This is the Jewish elders say, this man has done enough. That he actually loves our nation. He's even built our synagogue. 
He loved the Jewish nation. He, built the, he even built the synagogue where, our, where the word of God is read every Sabbath day. First of all, we can note it's interesting to see this harmonious relationship between Jew and Gentile. And it is rather unique because Jews and Gentiles did not like one another. Uh, rather, they hated one another. At least in general, Jews despised Gentiles because they were unclean pagan worship, idol worshippers. And they ate bacon. And they had no place amongst us. And of course, Gentiles hated Jews because it's like, man, we eat bacon and they don't like us. But because they were constantly being condemned by the Jews. You are outside of the covenant. God has no concern for you. They also didn't like the Jews. They figured they were atheists because they didn't worship the pantheon of gods that they did. They had no regard for the emperor whom they considered divine. And so there's this big clash of, of... Uh, Between Jew and Gentile, they hate one another. But here is a man who loves God's people and even loves God's word. And wasn't that the mark of a disciple that Jesus gave in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 35? What does the disciple do? He loves his enemies. Here is a man who actually loves his enemies. And in verse 35... Love your enemies and do good. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. He actually loves the Jews. Built their synagogue, and for all we know, he doesn't expect anything in return. We also learn quite a bit about the Jewish understanding, the, the understanding of the Jewish religion, or at least how they understood things. We, we learn about their faith, and their faith is based on merit. In other words, God, you should come and help this guy because he's done good things. His his meritorious works have deserve your coming into his life and doing what he has asked. We should note that, of course, this is always an issue from the very beginning of time, probably till the very end of time, is that we believe that God loves us because of our merit, what we have done, because I, like, I love my enemies and I do good to them, therefore God must love me. So they're, they're racking up points, they're trying to build up their case. Well, this guy's really good, you, you ought to do something for him. Unfortunately, while this may be the predominant faith in the world, regardless of what it's called, it can be called under a variety of isms, but the ultimate thing is is that merit earns favor with God. And we're going to learn this man realizes that he has no merit, but the Jews are building him up. Man, he's a great guy. We'd be cautious, even in our churches. Because we tend to think, well, this person must be favored by God because they do all of these great things. And it's In churches, we often think, well, big donors get big favors, right? That's what they're going to this guy with, saying, man, he's, he's a big donor. Give him what he wants. Do what he says, because we don't want to lose that income. 
And it's tempting in a church. Well, somebody's a big donor, and so we turn a blind eye when they live a life that is contrary to the gospel. You know, this is why, this has nothing to do with the sermon, but I'll just throw it out. This is why that um, this church has blessed me in the fact that um, I am utterly and completely separate from all finances. I, I don't know. I try to think of myself as a fairly uh, of a person of some integrity, but I also realize that I'm just a human being. And would I compromise if I knew somebody was a big donor? Anyways, that's neither here nor there other than to say this church has blessed us in that thing. But this idea then that we operate on a merit system, Jesus, you should heal this guy's Servant, you should answer his request because he is a good individual. He has done enough to merit healing of this servant. And so Jesus hears what they say, and he ends up saying, Fine, let's go, let's go to his house, which, by the way, is very interesting, isn't it? Jesus, a, a good Jew, is going to the house of a Gentile. Well, this is a no no. You just don't do that. But I believe it's a fulfillment of God's promise. Remember, Luke also wrote wrote the book of Acts, right? And in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see the gospel of Christ, the gospel of God going out from Jerusalem into Judea, into Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. Luke's really big on making sure we understand that the gospel is not for a specific, exclusive group of individuals. It is for all of those who will have faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of where you're born, regardless of where you live. Where you live. And in fact, this is what Isaiah was saying back in Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 through 8. There's a wonderful passage of text where... Isaiah writes, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, profane it, profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others besides those, all, beside those already gathered. My house will be called a house of prayer to all the people. And yeah, I'm going to go to Israel. But I've got other people that I'm going to gather. You can already begin to see Jesus is now going. And he is beginning to gather these other people. That the glory of God would cover the earth. And so Jesus goes and he begins to, to move towards the centurion's home. But before he gets there, the centurion has set, sent a second delegation. And delegation number two comes up to him and says, Lord, don't bother coming. You don't need to even come into the centurion's home. It's not necessary. Because this man recognizes authority. All you need to do is say the word and it's done. This is an amazing statement. See, this centurion understands, first of all, he says, I'm not worthy. Contrast that with the words of the Jewish elders. This man is worthy because he's done all these great things. 
And the centurion doesn't say, well, Jesus, hurry on up because I got a synagogue to build. Or if you do this, you know what? I'll, I'll pay the, the rabbi's salary for a year. Doesn't say that. He said, you don't even need to come. I'm not worthy to have you come under the roof of my house. You can just stay where you're at. Now, he doesn't say this because he thinks he's some sort of despicable, horrible human being. Rather, he does this because he understands rank. He understands authority. He understands hierarchy. He understands position. And he recognizes his position, which is relatively a, a fairly high rank. But he also recognizes that Jesus' rank is much higher. That the authority of Jesus is much higher than mine. You don't need to come into my house. It has nothing to do with what I've done or not done. What it has to do with is I know who you are. And I know who I am. And even in my rank, even in my position, I command people to do things and they do it. And a guy like you, you don't even need to show up in my house. All you need to do is say the word. See, I recognize that Jesus is not my equal. He is not my servant. He is not my slave. I do not tell him what to do. I do not command him what to do. He is not even my equal where we get together and discuss the best plan of action. No, he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings and he does not even need to enter into my house. I recognize that. So Jesus, all you need to do is say, let it be done and I know it's done. Because that's how I operate. Just say the word. So he appeals to Jesus not on personal merit, but on the authority of who Jesus is. He's heard about Jesus. And he believes. And he believes so much. It's like, you don't even need to be in my house. You don't even need to be in my presence. You don't even need to touch the guy. None of that stuff needs to happen. But you, being Lord of Lords and King of Kings, just say the word and it'll be done. That's all that needs to happen. And so, whatever the source of this illness, I don't know the source of the illness, perhaps it's some sort of spiritual malady, perhaps it's physical, perhaps it's emotional, I don't know. But this man, this centurion, this outcast, this Gentile, says whatever the source, it doesn't matter because all sources obey the authority of you. And if it's a spiritual force, then demons will have to flee at your word. And if it's a physical force, then bodies will have to be healed at your word. Because you are the Lord of heaven and earth. You are the Lord of uh, a physical body. And you are the Lord of the underworld. And you are the Lord of everything. You are the Lord of, of his emotional state and his mental state. You are Lord of all. So, whatever the source of the problem is, it doesn't matter. Because you are of higher rank than it. You are creator of all things, so just say the word. And here we get to this text that just leaps out at us because it is the one of two places in all of the New Testament where Jesus is amazed. And it is the only positive one. And Jesus marvels. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. And he turns to the crowd and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Do you notice the rebuke there? That is a chastisement. Even in Israel, 
even amongst God's people who have the law and the prophets and the commandments and the covenants and all of those things, I haven't found such faith as in this Gentile, pagan, outsider, outcast. Matthew then actually ends up adding words. He says, and I tell you this, people will come from the east and the west and sit down. Um, basically, he's saying that the Jews will reject Christ, but people, Gentiles, the hated Gentiles will come and will be seated at the table with Christ. So we see the faith of the centurion causes Jesus to marvel. It's not that the man has faith in miracles. He doesn't believe in some sort of magic spell that needs to be cast. He simply recognizes the authority of Christ. He recognizes that authority that's in Christ. And so he realizes that Jesus doesn't even need to be be present for this to take place. And the boy is healed. So, I'll make a brief summary here. I told you, or I mentioned to you, that this was a great example of a disciple that we discovered in in Luke chapter 6. So let's look. How does this fit the disciple uh, that Jesus described in in chapter 6? First of all, he approaches Christ. He approaches the man of God on God's terms. That is, blessed are the poor. I am not worthy. Regardless of what merit, regardless of what things I have done, I am not worthy to have you come into my house. I am poor, wretched, blind, and miserable, and you are Lord. I do not come to you with any personal merit. I do not come to you saying, oh, look how great I am. Look what I've done for your nation. If it weren't for me, you wouldn't even have a synagogue in this town. He says, no, I come to you unworthy. That's the first thing. Next thing we see is that he loves his enemies and he does good to them. He actually loves his enemies. And he actually genuinely cares for those who cannot pay. This slave boy cannot repay him. But he has a great love for him. So he has this incredible love for people who who he ought to be hating. And he actually cares for and expends energy to take care of those who can't return the good favor to him. He recognizes that Jesus is Lord, Lord. And like the wise man, he establishes life on the word of Christ. He actually believes the word of Christ. Just say the word. I believe it. It will happen. This is the prototypical disciple. This is exactly what the person that Jesus was talking about. Our question then is, can we trust like the centurion? Because this is the type of faith that brings God's approval. Not only does it bring the Lord's approval, it brings his amazement. So what is the cause of his amazement? The cause of his amazement is that the centurion believed. Not only did he believe, but he acted out on his belief. Because faith produces action, I believe. And if he just stayed at home saying, well, I hope my... Guy gets my, my servant boy gets healed. It's like, no, I'm going to take action. Faith works. So, I'll conclude with this. This is a miracle story that doesn't focus on a miracle. Did you notice that? 
It's a miracle story, but we really, the focus isn't on the miracle. It's mentioned, but just kind of mentioned in passing. Oh, and the boy was healed. It's focusing upon the centurion's faith. It's focusing on a man who believes. And what does he believe? You can say, well, he believes the promises. No, he believes... We don't believe promises. That's not what we believe. Our goal is not to believe in promises. Our goal is to believe in person, in a person. The person who makes the promise is much more important than the promise. I can make you all kinds of promises. But if I can't fulfill them, the promises are null and void. They're worthless. Jesus makes promises. And we may believe the promises, but the reason we believe the promises is because of the person. Centurion believes the person. And so that when he speaks, it's like it's done. This centurion has, I think, provides us an interesting model. First of all, he gives us an exalted view of Christ. Do you have an exalted view of Christ, or is he your equal? Has he been made in your image? Because if so, you've brought him down. Our Lord is the creator of heaven and earth, and he is exalted. He is Lord. And while he calls us his friends, he is still the King of kings and the Lord of lords to whom we will give an account. He is not your homeboy, despite what the t-shirt says, right? He is Lord. We need to have an exalted view of Christ. This man also has a humble view of himself. He does not bring Christ down, nor does he exalt himself to the throne of Christ. He has a humble view of himself. And here's the other thing. He has a compassionate view of others. This is the disciple. This is what it means. This is part of what it means to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ. To have an exalted view of our Lord, a humble view of ourselves, and a compassionate view of others. And this, then, is the disciple that causes Jesus to marvel. This is the thing that amazes Jesus. So let us, I pray, as a church, let the church on Randall Place be a place where Jesus looks down from his throne and says, That's awesome. I'm amazed. I'm in awe. I marvel. So will Christ look at us, not only as individuals, but as a corporate body? Will he look at us and say, I'm amazed at your unbelief after all of the great things that I've done in your midst and you will not believe. Will that be the cause of his amazement for us? Or will he look at us and see that we believe him, we trust in him, we build our lives on him and as a result be amazed by that? Those are the two instances of Jesus being amazed. One negative, one positive. I would pray that God, God has done so many amazing things in our midst. He's done so many miracles. He's done so many good things that we would be like the centurion to exalt him, humble ourselves, and be compassionate towards one another. Let's stand and pray, and we will uh, go out with singing.